Hello dear heart, welcome to the Flourishing Practitioners Podcast, where we talk all things about space holding, caring for our clients and succeeding in our businesses. We explore the wisdom from coaches, counsellors and healers. My name's Gabrielle Walker and I'm so honoured that you're here. Let's dive in. Kia ora, hello beloveds. Here's our first conversation, love by love connection with Jodie Clover. And we recorded this in October 2022. Time flies so quickly and so my deep apologies for this taking so long for Jodie and everyone else because Jodie is one of my favourite people. I love how she sees the world. I think she has this deep compassion and empathy for everyone and her ability in my experience with her to articulate the deep process that it is to be human is so inspirational and always ignites something within me. I feel heard by Jodie as a friend and I feel heard by her as a counsellor and I just think she has so much to offer the world so I'm excited for you all to hear from her. For all those who are listening to this Flourishing Practitioners podcast, Jodie is in my counselling supervision group actually is how we first met. Uh, she works currently as a counsellor for an NDIS service and she is part of Clover Healing so which is a heart-centered healing healing practice and from the discussions I've had with you over the time, we obviously don't talk about exactly what we always talk about in supervision, but from my vibe of you and the energy of you, I feel like you have so much wisdom that sometimes isn't spoken about in our practice in a way, in, in terms of just insight and little little snippets of things. So I'm so looking forward to, to sharing that that energy with you today here thank you for being here first off and secondly I would just love to hear what drew you into counseling what you comes forth for you to share in that way first of all thank you for having me it's very humbling to be invited into this space and I really was blown away at the invitation of being invited to your space so thank you so much mm-hmm. what drew me to counseling was I was at a crossroads in my life where I was separated in a new relationship and I've got three boys who were transitioning into early adulthood. I had this burning feeling in my belly for about two years that there's something else I need to be doing. But at that time, my priority was raising my three boys and I was working part-time as a corporate sales manager whilst also being on social services as well and that was tough going financially it was tough going which created this sense of wanting to do something with my life I think started to arise like once my son was turning 16 I realized that pretty soon they're all going to be launching into the next phase of their life and what am I going to do (laughs) like I said I sat with that feeling for two years was it a business was it getting a qualification in the field that I was working in I realized that that wasn't my thing even though I knew I could do that with my eyes closed it wasn't the fire in my belly and one day I was watching an episode of Gypsy which is probably not (laughs) a great um, example of what a therapist is. But the first episode, I sat there and I I was ironing and watching the, the, the show and thought, I can do that. In fact, I do that. I do that all the time. 
I could do that and get paid for it. <laughs> so, and that's how it all started. And from the moment that I searched universities, enrolled, everything just blowed, even getting there. Mm. Transport was easy. Everything was just easy. The work itself, that was um, intense because I really immersed myself in the work for three years. That, that's how I came to be here. Oh, well, yeah, and you're, from what I perceive, you're such a natural, so I love that when we make those decisions in life, it is easy, even though there's challenges. It's sort of that clarity. I think that's a nice thing for, for people that are sometimes searching for their passion or they're wondering to know. It's like when you, that our right decisions do flow, even if there's like mental blocks we sometimes have to navigate as well. I would love to hear how you view counselling now. This is something I'm exploring a bit as I'm stepping more into the space. Is like I don't feel there's actually a definition for what we do in a way that's that people can understand readily so I'd love to hear how you see it obviously there's lots of interpretations so at its core it's and in its simplicity is it's one person being in one human being in contact with another human and the space between that energetic field between the two human beings being in relation is a safe space for people to talk about things and you probably heard it yourself many times people will often say I don't talk about this or I don't tell I don't I don't know why I said that because I don't normally talk about this or it shows me that there is a lot of things that people bottle up or don't feel comfortable exposing in their everyday relationships but there's just something that happens in between when they feel safe to do it yeah I'd love to hear as well that safety what do you feel that we do that creates safety? Like you said in the introduction, I come from a heart space and I think that sort of comes through a felt sense as well. Quite often I am told, oh, you're different from the others or what's your degree again? Because I don't fit into the, especially for people who have been through the mental health system for many years, some even decades, coming into a counselling space is a little bit different for them and and trying to work it out because it's not as regimented you know I think a big part of the work is establishing that trust the word empathy comes up to being able to express empathy I remember hearing a TED talk where the anatomy of empathy is to be seen to be heard and to be understood and I think that's what a counselling space offers I see you I hear you and I understand you Beyond that, coming from a person-centred approach or heart-centred approach is compassion and that, is, that, that goes beyond empathy because the one thing that I have noticed through the work that I do is when you become empathetic to a person's circumstances, you pretty quickly transfer into what it would be like for you, which is the whole definition of empathy, is to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but then you're in your story and you get further away from theirs of what it would be like for you if you were having that experience. So compassion brings you back to that's happening to them and that's, you know, I feel really sad that that's happening to them or being able to reflect, I'm so sorry that happened to you because it's not happening to me. So it's sort of like a protective emotion as well as being able to connect with that person. I think that that understanding of person-centeredness is such a required skill set 
of us, and but also we need to interrogate that. I feel like you did describe it really well, but how do you, I loved how you connected heart-centered and person-centered. How would you describe person-centered and heart-centered together? That lit me up. I'm like, yes, that's it. Yeah, for for me, the, the, the whole reason why I'm, here is because and doing this work is because of my love for humanity and I think that's where the heart part comes in that we're just all trying to do life the best we can and to be able to share that with another person our struggles because to be human means we are going to experience anxiety we are going to you know experience suffering and loss and grief and you know all those things that and person-centered interconnected with that is not judging it's not wrong it's not right it's just it's here and invite that into the space to talk about it because you know I think when people suppress those things or try to push them down or ignore them that's when stuff happens so being being able to bring that into the light so that it doesn't have that much power over them yeah and would you would you have any thoughts on how you know for people who are new to this space on how not to be judgmental if something is arising for them or um, is that just something you're naturally you naturally able to achieve or is that something you've worked on? I think it's a bit of toggling that happens because reflective practice is a very big part of the work that I do and unpacking my re- my reactions to the things that are coming up in in a space or my thoughts on certain societal you know like I never I remember when I started uni the first thing that we were asked in one of our classes was who would you not work with Mm. and through working in the space that I'm working at now I've been exposed to all elements and presentations and some of which were listed as people I, I didn't think I could work with But then to my surprise, coming from a heart-centered space, I can work with those people. It's so funny. I'm just flicking into when I remember when we got asked that question and then immediately that week I booked like four clients that had that presentation of what I had. And I was like, oh, my God, Gabrielle, you're literally being tested immediately. (laughs) I I found that thought difficult for me. I really am person-centered. Like there's no thing like, oh, I won't work with anyone with that thing or that presentation. It's more that the thing I'm more not able to work with is like not wanting to change. For me, there has to be some desire to be in that, like the connection in the work I do. Mm -hmm. Obviously it would be different if I was in a a, um, traditional counselling space. There has to be the choice to to have stepped into my space. That needs to be to be present for for me in in opening my practice. But aside from that, I'll weave with anything. Like because there's such beauty in in unpacking that non-judgmentalness and for myself too. You know, like really being like, wow, like I can't believe you're navigating and the honor, the honor that of being able to see some of the pieces of humanity that aren't discussed outside those sorts of our, our spaces and just, yeah, the gratitude is what I feel often. And and usually behind some of the behaviours, when you get into their backstory, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering. There's, I think 85% of the people that I work with have experienced childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, like psychological abuse and some have been quite horrific to hear 
and then it, things start to make sense. But then in the space that we're in now, you're working with the here and now. So that's only relevant what has happened in the past insofar as how it's present in what's happening right now. Being able to sit in that space with people like that too, as a practitioner, comes from a lot of work on knowing who you are to feel confident to be able to hold that space. Mm, yeah, completely. For, for me, that's part of why these discussions are important because I want people to be thinking about not just, oh, I learned this and this is how I hold space and I hold myself with this this thing. It's like, who are you? How do you hold space? Like what are the individual things? Like how, how much can you meet in the presence and the heart? Mm-hmm. But what, what are your barriers in that, that connection to and capacity? My barriers around my heart, after going through a messy breakup in my last relationship, uh, and I say messy because it was messy for me, there was a lot of things that I had to unpack. And I remember listening to a spiritual healer by the name of Matt Khan, and there was something that he said that really woke me up I suppose it was the next thing I woke up out of and that was when you have your heart smashed to smithereens most people try to put it all back together again and sometimes build it even stronger but his suggestion was to leave it smashed because then it's open to everything and that's how that was a really transformative idea and thought experiment to run with that I actually embody that now that my heart is open to everything so I don't sort of experience those boundaries or barriers that you were speaking to so I agree with you that's my perception of you completely is that would you just drawing on that a little bit more there's all there's the societal pressure there's the industry pressure like put up these walls create these boundaries what would you say to someone who's who knows they have um, more hard work to do or more dropping of armour in the heart, what would you share for them? First of all, I'd highly recommend anything that Brene Brown's written <laughs> um, for reading material. And well, another thing that I learned in my journey of the messy breakup was how much I had immersed myself into others and not so much wow. into myself. And so that whole notion of oh self-care self-love and it was kind of an abstract thing to say to somebody that hasn't maybe experienced what it means to feel loved or for me a lot of the work was being the person that I needed for myself Mm. and that meant I had to apply what I was giving to others and what I had learned from a person-centered approach to myself and I think that, that therein lies, that's the work of a counsellor, is to help their, I keep going to say participants because that's what we call them in the NDIS. Oh. <laughs> the, people, um, the people that you're working with is to help them learn and give them the skills to learn to like themselves again if loving seems too traumatic at that time or and eventually to love themselves too. But to give that approach not to judge themselves to have curiosity develop skills and reflective practice learn that there is a a space between something happening and a reaction to it you can use time to respond instead of react you know let's calm the limbic system down and all those things that you learn I love that that's so cool there's there can be this perception 
oh, like counseling will heal you, like this is the answer, or even even with self-care, like whatever the thing is. And it's not. It's it's a relationship and it's a learning process and an ongoing one. And and you yeah. do have leap, you do have leaps and you do learn more and but then you have to learn again. Like even recently I went through a whole other thing of like, oh, I've like got to learn what self-care I need at this point in my life, this time. It, there's, it's different than what was nourishing me before because there's, there's new things emerging. Well, that's another thing that I learned from Matt Khan too is that every aha moment is just going to be something else you're going to wake up out of eventually <laughs> as we ascend up and get because yeah. we're always becoming. You know, I know we've spoken about Irvin Yalong a lot, but, you know, that's the title of his book, Becoming Myself, and he wrote that in his 80s or late 80s. So we're always becoming. It's it's fluid. It's always moving. It's not a destination. It's just happening all the time. Maybe I'm speaking from my own perspective rather than yours, but for me it's similar. I'm very, like, reflective in my practice so that when I'm with a client I'm totally there. But, but those those things or those thinkings or that existentiality will be, like, informing my being in those moments. So do you have anything to say I think the most important thing is, like, I think what we've been talking about, about that space of being person-centred, is what they call um, a phenomenological approach, which is just being in the moment. And that's one thing that I love about the space is that whatever the person is bringing into the space is what you're working with at that time so we might have just talked about something last time but then they've come in with something completely new the next time being able to sit and feel comfortable with not knowing the fact that professor sam vaknan just said in a podcast just recently he could study the mind for three to four lifetimes and still know nothing and i think that's a really humbling thing that it's not for us to actually know what's going on for the person, but it's to help them tap into their own wisdom. And sometimes I find that my reflective practice is sometimes those sessions that we have together may feel like it was skirting on the surface. So my own sort of imposter syndrome rears up, oh, I don't feel like I did anything, I don't think. Do you know? So there's a lot of reflective practice around that. I'm an avid cpd person so i'm always listening to webinars or listening to my favorite psychologists on youtube and spiritual advisors and meditation healers you know because i i'm very eclectic i really love jungian philosophy i love the existential philosophers yeah and then some of the practical advice so that there is a lot to be able to sort of offer but it's stuff that's aligned with me that's one thing that I learned very quickly when I was at uni was every modality that we were learning, I when I had to write an assessment on the piece, I wrote an assessment as though I was the person receiving the treatment in my mind, like I embodied that. And if it felt like it induced shame, that was a modality I was not going to use. That was an approach I was not going to take. That's huge for people who are training now. I really appreciate you sharing that because I feel as if that that for me is is the key of what we stand for is like listening shame and the harm it does shame and blame we place on others or, or activate within others because of different for whatever reason. So wow, 
that's a huge offering. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but that's not to say that shame doesn't come up in the space. No, of course. Yeah, and that's what talk, you're, and of course. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what you're working with. The reason I'm doing that and, and focusing on that is because I feel like within our culture, shame can sometimes be very present. In, in terms of internalised shame because of colonisation, but then also intercultural shame because of, like, different access to culture people had. And then also, like, um, some of the eldership way, ways that people were taught. And, and for me, it's just so, 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 so important that that is something I'm cleansing of my own, my own way of being taught, but also in terms of how I transmit to the to the bit to the most important it's so important to me and, and I think sometimes we don't see where we have those little tendencies to activate that so that's why I can comment because that embodiment thing like I'm so somatic and I'm so I learn so much through my body that that example you gave of like feel if that if that was you and, and for my trainings, I'm just thinking as well, feel if what you're doing to someone is you, how would that feel for you? And, and that's also why I, I, I encourage them so much, like receive your own healing, like go and receive healing, not just to receive the healing, but to know in the space holding, is that for you? So is that what you want to replicate in your space holding? Like that thing that, that, that happened there, not, not to judge that person or their practice or how they do, but know in your body how it feels to be held and let yourself be held mm. and, then, and then integrate that also into your practice. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So shame is such a prevalent circling um, mm-hmm. in our culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's the thing, like, to, um, yes, there, uh, there's so much intersectionality, you know, whether it's the stigma of having a mental health challenge and the way society talks about certain people that have mental health challenges, you know, all those things all where everything interconnects and that intersectionality. But for me, I tend to just, I, I more zoom out and I see us all as doing the best we can to get mm-hmm. through life. Life teaches us how to do life too. So we, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We take a lot of things for granted too. The fact that we say, oh, I'll see you next week. Well, we say that without even knowing if that's actually going to be true. Looping back to knowing who you are is so important in terms of not taking on other what other people's offerings. You know, there's that Buddhist saying, if somebody comes to you with the gift of their anger and you don't accept it, to whom does it belong? But that's not to say that you actually want to cause the person seeking help any more grief. But there was an, an interesting experience that I had where I worked with a man that in the first six to eight sessions, there was a lot of anger, a lot of what I call puffing up and talking over with a big booming voice and and I know that the person that he worked with previously experienced that as oh it makes me nervous and it was probably halfway through with that I was able to I, I knew that our relationship was that trust was establishing he was um opening up a little bit more he was 
softening around the edges. You could see that sort of transformation where that was becoming less and less and there was more softening. And where I was able to reflect to him that time in a way that does he do this in his everyday life with other people as a protective factor and to reflect back to him that when he was doing that to me, I, I never felt threatened, I never felt scared because I, what I saw was he was showing me how small he felt when he was being abused as a child. So I think the lesson there is sometimes when people are projecting things onto you, they're actually, and, and you feel it, you have that visceral response to what you're hearing, they're giving you a clue of how they felt when they went through an experience. That's a good reflection of that. Yeah, also, I also I often think of anger as like, is it a, like a melon? Like it's got a hard exterior, but when you push it inside, there's a soft, yeah. like love, like lovely juiciness. I don't know, like, oh, yum. That's, that's, <laughs> like, but I've got to get through that, like, through this, but the spiky bits on the outside of the yummy fruit. <laughs> it's exactly like that isn't it It, and it's quite nice to see the transformation and and the and the shock on his face when I reflected that back to him because he was yeah that probably was exactly what I was doing yeah and then can you um sort of define or describe what protective factors are for people who may not know who are listening protective factors in this sense is the coping strategies that people develop to avoid feeling pain, to avoid feeling shame, to avoid being hurt. I mean, by our very nature, we're biologically hardwired to scan for threat all the time. So I think a lot of people end up coming to see people like you and me because it didn't work. It worked maybe at the time when they needed it, but unchecked, you know, still using those strategies where they're no longer necessary is causing more pain and more suffering and more hurt. But protective factors in a clinical sense is do they have supports? Do they have family? What are their finances like? You know, what are their basic needs being met? So there's, there's two prongs. I have written that you would want to share a little bit about like your philosophy of counselling. I know we've already touched on a lot already, but that existential approach or thoughts around that, do you have anything at all? Yeah. For me, I really love the work of the existential philosophers and therapists that have gone on to teach, you know, students so, and your humanists as well. So I really loved working and diving deep into um, Carl Rogers, who was the father of person-centred, and Irvin Ulam, Spinelli and a whole host of others that were the existentialists because I think they're very closely linked to each other. And, you know, with a person-centred, as we've discussed, bringing that into an existential space, which is to be human means we're going to experience anxiety. To the, de- the degree of the anxiety is one thing, but we can't escape it. You know, I often joke with people who say uh, he'd come to a session saying I've got anxiety and I just can't cope and and I'll say to them I can take you to a place where there no one has anxiety really yeah the cemetery 
because it's what it means to everything, you know, that there's so many, um, it comes and it goes and it rises and it falls and, you know, it, it becomes a problem when it's up here all the time. Um, so, yeah, so the existential is what I love about that is not only about the work that you're doing internally, but it's also, and, you know, like we've touched on, how does being in the world affect the person? How does being in relationship with other people affect the person? How does being in relationship with themselves or their own self-awareness, how is that impacting on the person? But then the flip side is how do they impact the world that they live in? How do they impact the relationships? And do you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a back and forth. And quite often the space that you're working with is where's the boundary between what belongs with the self and what belongs with the other a lot of the time it's relationships that is the number one reason why people come to see a therapist to try and navigate a therapist and if I could use my own example before of the messiness of how I had just completely immersed myself into the other and forgotten who I was the work for me was coming back to self remembering who I was you know it was almost like for a little bit of a time there I I knew who I was in my core but I was becoming like a contortionist trying to fit and mold into what the other's expectation was which I think a lot of that work comes back to reconnecting with your values because your values will inform your boundaries and it's tough sometimes to say no it's tough to let go of things that are no longer good for you well now when you look at the relationship is that a healthy relationship for you is that somewhere that now as much as the attachment is strong to be in relationship with that person is there things that how are you affecting the other person too and what are their boundaries respect for their boundaries and respect for your own whatever is coming up in the clinical space or sorry I like to say clinical space coming up in in the session is um, to show it respect. Relationship or desire for relationships are often what brings people into into our spaces. So how do does our relationship? How do you see that? Like a, a counselor, client, or a participant relationship? How do you see that as a healing relationship in a way? How does that work? I remember at uni again being asked the question, do you think religion has a space in counselling? Or is it like religion, like a religion? And I thought about that. And for me, I think it is. Because once upon a time, you had confession. People would go to confession. And now with therapy, you have a space where there are ethical boundaries what is said in the space, unless they are of harm to themselves or to others or report harm to children or elderly, yeah, we're mandated to report. But other than that, anything, they're free to talk about whatever they want without any repercussion. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's safe for them to, um, to say whatever they want. So it's a sacred space being able to trust another human being with the things that are being kept in the darkest, darkest places 
within them and to let that out is a healing thing to do in connection because we're hardwired to be in connection with others too. We're not meant to be solitary. Totally. Yeah, I actually had a randomly ran into a woman on the beach yesterday and she was sharing, sharing her journey with um with with desiring to step into this space but also desiring not to create dependency and I was like but relationships or you know where if you're if you even if you're having a therapy client relationship everyone's free to come and go choose if they you know would prefer that they do show possession but choose if they do or don't that's their choice and sometimes there's dependency but it doesn't mean you're like holding someone tight like don't go out don't this is how you have to be in your life it's like yeah okay this is where we're at this moment and in relationship and connection and sacred moment Mm. and then you go Mm. you You know it's it's a it's I really I really love that description and I think it is I think it's completely sacred I can't see it in any other way Mm. because this is I'm just flying out of that that for me talking even about like the shame or the or the trauma or the things that come up, they've got that that's precious. Like that's gold, that's gold that maybe people wear as like, as you were saying, calling it protective factors. But when they actually bring that up, that is a sacred that is a sacred alchemy mm. that's taking place. And and if that can be held as you described earlier with that anger, if it can be held and be like, you're okay, that's okay. I'm okay with that. That is so healing. Mm-hmm. Just well, just being yeah. witness to your stuff, like just just being able to 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 verbalize or say or do something, and I mean, someone to reflect. It's okay. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. I could, like, yeah. It's like something inside of us changes when that that's possible to 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 process in relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's through through relationship. And one of the, uh, Sartre, I think it was, an existential philosopher wrote about we get a sense of who we are based on what's reflected back to us. You know, mm-hmm. So I'm always very mindful of that as well. And for a lot of people, we've heard that term, you can't fix a problem with the same head that created it. And so the same thought process that created it. And so I think that's where your body work is really, really important to help shift those things so that it shifts things up in the cognitions to have a look at things from a different point of view. And so I feel like, and this is just my own, it's not anything I've researched, but for me in being in relation in this way, I feel like it's not necessarily so much anything that I've said in the session it's how they've felt in the session that lasts with them long after the things we talk about in a session I'm very open and honest with them at the very beginning am I allowed to swear in this space (laughs) because I will say to them you can bullshit me but don't bullshit yourself Mm. it's an emotional investment to actually participate in therapy because it's not what necessarily is done in therapy it's what they take away and do between then totally totally yeah yeah i've said that before too like you can do that but it's your time 
<laughs> you know, like you can yeah. tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. how you want to use your session, use your session that way. <laughs> like, what, what's the point, you know? <laughs> Um, and, and then sometimes there are people that come and initially they're, they're, they just want to be heard and that might look like they're a right fighter, you know, I need to be right and tell me I'm right. What would you share about people who are trying to listen to learn about how to really listen to what someone is, like what their perspective is? So, to, so yes, there's the reflection, but... Sometimes it's like, so, so the same event could have happened to them and to me, and we would conceptualize it completely different. So how, how would you guide people who are listening to us maybe to like really listen to what that, how that person is seeing it, not how you're seeing it? First of all, I remember hearing, I think it was come, came out of the positive psychs movement, the closest any human being can be to another person's experience is through humour. I always hold that in the back of my mind that if you're having a laugh with a client, that's the closest connection you're ever going to have when it's a wholehearted, <laughs> you know, laugh. But aside from that... I love that because I, I, I had one of those laughs um, a few days ago just like cracking up over something ridiculous and it was just like... And in our practice we say... You know that you know the or well, basically like the healing's done. Like the whatever you were working on is done when you start cracking up. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like when that crack up is like suddenly you just see it for what it is, and you're like can't stop laughing. You know it's done. Yeah, that's that's what, we, <laughs> what I was always taught, and I just I just love that as a reminder because sometimes people are like, can we be laughing about this? You know, it's, like, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Oh yeah. <laughs> You know, you know, like when someone's sharing something, how, how would you advise people, like energetically within themselves, mm. to really listen to what that person, like how that person's conceptualising it? Because I think that must be where we lose people too is when we assume, oh, that happens so that means that, rather than what, like how are you seeing how, how is this? How is this influencing yeah. you? Like what, what's the pain point for you? Not, not what the pain point Yeah, for you. yeah. You hit it on the head. It's curiosity, being curious about, you know, and I think that's where the existential approach really interweaves with the person-centred approach because, I mean, if you were to practice person-centred and just that, it's a, the, question, the types of questions you ask are di- a bit different. Totally. But, but when you interweave that with an existential approach, it gives you permission to actually ask them, so what sense are you making of that? What story are you telling yourself about that? How has that impacted how you do this? Or you, you know what I mean? Like what, what's the meaning you're attaching to this story? And then you get more. I love that. What's the meaning you're attaching to the story? When you were talking, I was just thinking about how sometimes when you really do that further digging, it's like you're. It's surprising what you get, like mm-hmm. where those little. And that's sometimes people are surprised. They're like, "That's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's the thing that I've been like circling on." It's like, oh, mm-hmm. when we can bring light into those things, and it's not. And it's not always like bring up your trauma. It's like bring up your pattern sometimes mm-hmm. or, or bring up that thought that that little thing 
like what what is the actual pain point in a way like and once you realize that you're like oh okay so I can remove all these other thoughts in a way to to work with how I nourish that that bit yeah as a circling pain like uh maybe it's this maybe it's that like other people's projections onto what the thing is or so yeah oh it's not it's not even that for most of us like if we were to I know myself, if I was to go and talk to my friends about something that was happening for me, they care about me. So they're going to say, oh, that person shouldn't have done that to you. That's really shitty and blah, blah, blah. Or you should do this or you should do that. But that's not what therapy is. It's not directive like that. So it helps people find their own way of being in the world and dealing with their problems through the resources that they have. It, it reminds me again of something that I keep thinking of Matt Khan. He spoke about that when we're thinking, like we can overthink things. And really, when you think about who is thinking, is actually no thought at all because it's all an automatic looping of the way that we do things. So having these kinds of conversations and asking these questions actually puts a little stop and an injunction in there to actually separate the thought from no thought from no thought can't help but combine my coaching training with counseling even though it's it's person-centered i'm listening to what they look but it is always that a little bit of like here's just an offering of another way to you know here's some things that other people have come to try that on how does that feel they're stuck in in that so they might have like identified something similar to relationships like not know what a healthy relationship or not know how to love oneself that that's too much of a leap oh suddenly self-love from never having self-love or suddenly think different from oh you've identified the pain but but now then they're offering try ponder this walk with this curiosity about what what that might be in your life walk with that curiosity but yeah I love I love Matt Khan as well I, I haven't listened to him for a really long time, but um, there's been certain things around that heart space that have really resonated with me and different points in my journey, especially maybe around two that I, it was at a certain point where I'd had probably, I was probably like the lowest in my devotion to spirit, like that universe for me and sort of listened to him a bit around that time and I was like oh because I like the groundedness of how he talks as well it's not just like in the air there, there's an aspect of like um, practicality with it yeah. too yeah it's funny how um, these things come to us when we need them the most isn't it yeah yeah I found that too and I found he informed a lot of the way that I do my work him yeah. and Tara Brack yeah oh I love her work as well and, and I really like as well of Tara Brack, what I admire about her is that she's, you know, she is so far along in her journey and so well known and she still has that humbleness to say, I was in this thing. But I, I like that in the people I look to is like a bit of humanness, like a bit of like, oh, I, I'm still navigating that. Like that is still, that's still something I went through and that's what I hear with her, how she yeah. speaks. I really yeah. appreciate that. And, and that's so important, like, I can't tell you the amount of times that a person has asked me about something that they're going through and I'll be, I don't know, but we'll work it out together. The not knowing, being able to sit in not knowing is a really big thing. 
feeling are start to wind up. Is there anything we've missed that you would want to voice for those listening at all? Any wisdom you'd want to share? I really know. <laughs> I like the way that it was just emerging out of um, the discussion today, to be honest. The, the, I guess the biggest thing on my journey that I think is relevant and from what I'm seeing in the field of therapy, whether it be psychologists or counsellors or other healing spaces, is that you can only go with a person as far as you have been yourself and that's been well documented in academia for a very long time is that um, you can't take somebody beyond where you've been yourself and so to do the work on yourself and heal those broken you know do your best to heal those broken bits and if you're feeling triggered by any presentation then for me I, I look at triggers as those parts of us that still are popping their head up saying, hey, I'm still here, you haven't got rid of me yet. So it gives me some, another point of focus to, I need to do some more work on this. Mm, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative and <laughs> grateful for everything you shared and there's such, yeah, such beauty in that. Thank you for connecting with me for the first interview for Flourishing Practitioners. I look forward to sharing more of our archives with you and also connecting with new people along the way. If you want to find more out about my coaching or counseling work, just click on any of the links in the show notes or look me up on Wonderkind Energy on Instagram, wonderkind.com.au. So grateful. Thank you, dear heart. Aroha mai, aroha atu, love given is love received.